0: Has the Bible been changed and rechanged so many times that we no longer know what the original scriptures said? The New Testament continues to be under attack in today's culture. This is Evidence and Answers with author and speaker, Pat Zukarin. Today we're going to examine the reliability of the New Testament. What do we mean by New Testament manuscripts? Are there so many errors throughout time that the writings of the apostles are hopelessly lost? You're about to hear the latest research from a foremost expert in this area, Pat Zuckerin's special guest. Pat?
1: Yes, Kevin. We have with us a special guest, Dr. Dan Wallace, professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is a professor of New Testament and of Greek, and his book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics and Exegetical Syntax of the New Testament is now become probably the standard text for second-year Greek. If you're in seminary or college taking Greek and they're not using this text, you probably want to transfer. <laughs> Just kidding. But uh, with us is Dan Wallace, Dr. Wallace. Good to have you with us today.
2: Well, I'm delighted to be on the show. Thank you,
1: Dr. Wallace. You've spent over 20 years, well, 30 years learning Greek, and over 20 years studying ancient Greek or ancient New Testament manuscripts. Something called textual criticism. What is textual criticism, and and why is it important for us to study this?
2: Textual criticism simply is the science of trying to determine the wording of a document whose original has disappeared or uh, been destroyed over time. When it comes to the New Testament, we have to do textual criticism because we don't have the original documents anymore and because all of the manuscripts have mistakes in them. In fact, if you were to look at the two closest manuscripts uh, among the ancient ones, uh, they would disagree with each other between six and ten times per chapter. So obviously we can't just pick a manuscript and say, let's go with this one because it has mistakes, and we can't pick a group of manuscripts because they disagree with each other.
1: Now some people might be uh, surprised out there to hear, oh, our New Testament uh, has mistakes. Uh, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, I don't mean that our New Testament has mistakes. I mean that the manuscripts have mistakes. Mm-hmm. And and the, the scribes were simply human beings who were trying to copy out the text, uh, they may have done it for various purposes, but some of the scribes were careful, some of them were not. This is typical of uh, any kind of a human endeavor. Sometimes you get somebody who's a real detailed-oriented person and somebody else who's wanting to take big bites at a single shot. You know, So one scribe, we, we've looked at uh, the scribe of Papyrus number 75, copied out one letter at a time. The scribe of what's known as Codex Bezae, which is perhaps the most famous, bizarre manuscript among the New Testament manuscripts, copied out as many as eight or nine words at a shot. So you're talking about a great variance in terms of how these guys sometimes copied the text.
1: You know, now some people will say, well, the Bible I'm holding in my hand, I believe to be the Word of God, and that's good enough for me. Why do I need to study this? What would you say?
2: I would say that kind of an attitude could only exist after the invention of the printing press. Because after the printing press, you could start cranking up Bibles that looked exactly like each other. But it's not an attitude that I think uh, fits into history at all. When we examine the data, we discover that these ancient manuscripts all disagree with each other to some degree. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, on the show, how much they really do disagree with each other. But uh, we have to recognize that we don't have any ancient manuscripts that completely agree with each other but we do have printed texts that agree with each other so if somebody grew up with the king james bible and said hey the king james was good enough for paul it's good enough for me uh... that's an attitude that they'll bring to the table but that doesn't reflect anything that resembles true history
1: and so your goal in studying these ancient manuscripts is to try to get back an accurate copy as we can to the original documents that's the goal isn't it
2: that's exactly right
1: now i understand that you travel all over the globe photographing ancient new testament manuscripts can you tell us a little about this project and why you're doing it
2: is uh, an institute that I founded four years ago. It's called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. And uh, listeners can access our website at csntm.org. And uh, they can see thousands of uh, photographs of uh, manuscripts that we've uh, taken from various uh, monasteries throughout the world. What we are trying to do is take high-resolution digital photographs of all Greek New Testament manuscripts. They are in approximately 450 cities, if I recall throughout the, the, the planet, and there's over 5,700 Greek manuscripts. There's about 2.5 million pages to photograph. It's a lot of work to do, but uh, I, I take a team with me every summer, and we go to various sites uh, to photograph these manuscripts, make them accessible to scholars so that we can finally get back to determining the wording of the original text in the few places that we still have uncertainty.
1: Now, this is a real tough project because you need permission from the government, from the museum, or wherever you may go, it can be a long process, can it?
2: It can be a very long process. Sometimes it takes uh, three or four years to get permission. It's especially monasteries that uh, own these manuscripts. So about half the, the Greek New Testament manuscripts are owned by orthodox monasteries. Uh, the others are some individuals, uh, libraries, national libraries especially have them, uh, universities, this kind of thing, but it does take a, a long time to get permission. And once we get permission, we have to raise the funds. And our uh, institute is strictly a non-profit organization where we have to appeal to Christians to, to uh, uh, donate funds for this. And, of course, the problem there is they say, well, I don't know Greek. I don't see what the benefit is for me. So it's, sometimes it's hard to raise the money.
1: Yes, it's a well-worthy project and worthy of being supported here. I hope people go to your website here.
2: Uh, but, thank you. I hope so, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, now, Dan, you mentioned that... Um, The original manuscripts of the New Testaments uh, do not exist, and the doctrine of inerrancy and inspiration apply to the originals, don't they? Yes. Well, how many manuscripts of the New Testament are there?
2: We have, uh, in Greek alone, we have over 5,700 and still counting. And my uh, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts has actually discovered seven manuscripts in the last four years, seven New Testament manuscripts, which is very exciting. We have leads right now in over 200 uh, when you start looking at the versions, the Latin manuscripts, where the, the, the Latin text uh, of the New Testament was done as early as the second century, so the Greek manuscripts were translated into Latin very early on. We have over ten thousand copies of the New Testament in Latin. Then you look at some of these other ancient uh, uh, translations, like Coptic, or Syriac, or Georgian, or Old Church Slavonic, all sorts of things, Armenian things like this, and and the best estimates on that are somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand copies. Either whole or in part of the New Testament in these versions. No one has ever calculated exactly how many copies there are because they're scattered throughout the libraries of the world and they just haven't been entirely cataloged. So that's our best guess. That's why we have to be so broad in the numbers.
1: Now, how early then are the earliest manuscripts?
2: Well, this is the exciting thing is that uh, in 1935, the very earliest fragment of the New Testament was discovered. It was a fragment that's about the size of the palm of, of a person's hand, and it had John 18 on both sides of it, parts of John 18. It was dated to as early as A.D. 100 and as late as A.D. 150. Uh, this, to this day, is still probably the earliest fragment we have of the New Testament, but it's not the only fragment from the second century. We have now between 10 and 15 manuscripts. From the second century, so within just a few decades of when the New Testament was completed, you have between ten and fifteen manuscripts. That's just unheard of compared to any other ancient Greek literature.
0: Dan, put this in perspective for us. Most uh, works from the ancient world don't have any. We're close to that kind of manuscript abundance.
2: Oh, that's exactly right. And uh, the, the interesting thing is, people are skeptical about. Gee, how can we possibly tell what the original New Testament said since we don't have the original. And you could just turn that around and say, you're absolutely right. We can't tell about what the original New Testament said, but we also can't tell about what the original of any ancient Greek or Latin literature said because we don't have the originals of any of it. And we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the New Testament as compared to any other ancient Greek or Latin literature. They, they don't compare at all very well. Let me, let me give you the, the, some examples. You take Homer. Homer has a 900-year head start on the New Testament, and yet and Homer comes in second place compared to all the rest of Greek or Latin literature in terms of how many copies we have. We have discovered somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,400 copies of Homer. Uh, often you get uh, Christian apologists to say there's 643 copies, but the numbers have been increasing, as you'd expect for all of these documents. But 2,400 copies compared to 5,700 copies of the New Testament. Just in Greek and the versions, you get somewhere between 25 and 30,000 copies of the New Testament. We've got about ten times as much data for the New Testament as we do for Homer. That's a remarkable difference. The average Greek or Latin author has fewer than 20 copies remaining today, and the gap of when those uh, copies were written compared to when the original document was written is at least 500 years on average. If you were to stack those copies up, they would stand up to be about four feet tall to stack these, these manuscripts up on top of each other. You compare that to the New Testament, and the stack would be about a mile high. Mm. Now, I'm not even mentioning the patristic quotations of the New Testament. That we don't even know how to quantify in terms of uh, how much data we've got. The
0: patristic quotations, that would be the church fathers?
2: Yes, the church fathers, these ancient church leaders who were both scholars and bishops and pastors and they wrote commentaries on the new testament beginning at the end of the first century we have some church fathers all the way up through the thirteenth century typically is how they're dated and so far there have been cataloged well over one million quotations from the new testament by the church fathers so you destroy all the greek manuscripts all the versions and we can still reproduce virtually the entire new testament just on the basis of these church fathers quotations alone
0: well that's incredible you
1: know i perplexed by uh, scholars and things that we learn in college that they'll see these Greek documents as being very historically accurate and well-preserved. But when it comes to the New Testament, they criticize it being uh, inaccurately preserved and corrupted for some reason.
2: It's simply an inconsistency. I think that relates to the fact that the New Testament is addressing issues that affect our lives far more personally than Plato's Republic or uh, Herodotus or any of these other ancient historians because they are speaking of God invading time-space history in the person of Jesus Christ and he is the one to whom all of us on planet Earth are accountable. So obviously there's going to be a great deal of resistance on the part of human beings to see this as accurate, as reliable, as telling the truth about God because the realities it's talking about are of immense importance.
1: Now. You mentioned the the scribes in the transmission process. Describe that for us here. Were the scribes careful, and did they make mistakes, and what kind of mistakes were made here?
2: I think that we should say definitely the scribes made mistakes, but they were far more careful than is sometimes being represented today by books such as uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, Misquoting Jesus. Uh, He suggests the scribes just seem to go all over the map when it came to copying of the new testament but here's the interesting thing when you look at our very earliest manuscripts and you go through 14 centuries of copying right up until the time of the printing press the the text grows a grand total of about two percent in that 1400 years now that means that these scribes are adding material uh, at the rate of 1% every 700 years, you know, it's, it's not very fast that they're, they're adding material. They're not changing the text as nearly as dramatically as people might think. Now, at the same time, these scribes were human beings. They would make mistakes. If the uh, scribes made a mistake through an error of hearing or an error of sight or poor judgment because they couldn't quite read what's going on or they think there's a marginal note that should go into the text, or perhaps fatigue, there's all sorts of reasons why scribes could make mistakes. The fact is that those kinds of mistakes, which are called unintentional errors, are the easiest ones to detect. So textual critics can look at that and say, well, this scribe just blew it, and we understand exactly what he did, we know how to correct it. Other scribes, the more dangerous ones, were the ones who were thinkers. And these kinds of errors occurred far less often. These are the intentional changes where scribes, out of their reverence for the Scripture, would have harmonizations between the Gospels, or they might see a marginal note that someone had added as kind of a commentary on a passage, and they may say, well, I don't know if this belongs in the text or not, but the scribal mantra was, if and doubt, you put it in. It's not that you leave it out. I mean, after all, the scribes got paid by the line, so let's put it in, you know. <laughs> so they're putting in material that... that is added, and then the next scribe comes along, and he says, I-, I guess this is part of the text, so let me put it in. So the-, the manuscripts are growing over time, but they don't grow at nearly as dramatic rate as is often represented.
0: Dan, let's let's give an example of uh, maybe a-, a scribe who was a thinker and may have kind of put his own thoughts in the manuscript. I think an example of that may be early in Mark, when Jesus uh, responds to a man who says, If you're willing, you can make me clean. And our modern versions say Jesus was moved with compassion, and said, "I am willing," and he healed him. And then there are other manuscripts that say Jesus was moved with anger, and uh, and then healed him. But so the scribes thought, "Well, wait a minute. Jesus couldn't have been moved with anger, so he must have been moved with compassion." It may well be the case that there is something about the situation that angered Jesus. What is that an example of what you're talking about?
2: That is the kind of example I'm talking about. This is uh, an illustration that Bart Ehrman uses. In fact, it's uh, uh, the first illustration he uses in the fifth chapter of his book, Misquoting Jesus, as an example of a textual variant that changes the whole meaning of a book. It's in Mark one forty one, and there are just a handful of manuscripts that have, when Jesus was angry, he became angry, and then he healed the man. Rather than moved with compassion, he healed the man. And yet Ehrman argues that uh, the, the angry Uh, reading is the correct reading. I think he's presented a a fairly convincing case on that. But he goes beyond that and says, here's how this affects our entire understanding of Mark's gospel. But you can understand how how scribes are going to look at this and say, well, we see an angry Jesus here. We don't want to have an angry Jesus. And so they may change the text here and there. At the same time, Mark's gospel, in two other places, speaks of Jesus as angry on occasion. And I, I think it's almost a modern invention for us to look at Jesus and say, "Oh, he couldn't be angry because anger is always sin." Well, where does it say that in the Bible?
0: So it could well be that Jesus was angry and he was perhaps angry at the situation, at the man's doubt, uh uh, I think one guy in Baylor University has argued that uh, there was something demonic, possibly, and Jesus was angry about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was Pro- so it, Proctor in his dissertation of Baylor. Very good. You got, you've done your homework.
0: Well, yeah, so it, it, doesn't, make, it doesn't change the whole book of Mark if, uh, if the passage reads that Jesus was moved with anger.
2: No, it doesn't, but it does give us a glimpse as to what the scribes were thinking and how since we don't have an angry Jesus in Matthew or Luke in the parallels there, They might want to change that and put in a different uh, participle and say, well, no, he was moved with compassion. But this kind of thing did not occur very frequently uh, in these early manuscripts where it changes the whole picture. Most of the changes, the vast majority of changes, are the kinds of things that cannot even be translated. They have to do with spelling differences. Uh, The name John always has one N or two N's in the manuscripts. there's a thing known as a movable new where you put an N at the end of a word if the next one starts with a vowel, and some manuscripts did it, some manuscripts didn't do it. That's the most common textual variant we have in the New Testament. These are the, the mundane kinds of issues that textual critics say, I'd just like to get to the real problems. These are, these are the ones I have to deal with because they're there in the text, but they don't affect anything.
1: So should a person out there seeing that maybe there's some variant readings, that should they be alarmed at thinking, oh... Uh, and lose some confidence in the New Testament text that we have here?
2: I don't think so, because uh, here's the interesting thing. When it comes to the text of the New Testament in the original, the vast majority of New Testament scholars would say, we never have to resort to conjecture to try to determine what the original wording is. In other words, the original wording is found in some manuscripts. And so we, we know that the reading is either A, B, C, or D kind of a thing. Consequently, we can test to see what A, B, C, or D say, and we don't have any manuscripts that say, Jesus was not God, Jesus was not raised from the dead, Jesus was not born of a virgin. There's no manuscripts that affect any essential truth that Christians embrace.
0: Well, Dan, i got, I got a real hard question for you, then. It, it requires a lot of speculation, and it's kind of a spiritual question, and that would be, well, what is God up to, then? Uh, why didn't God preserve the originals? Why has he chosen to use humanity, not bypass humanity, uh, in the transmission of his word? People say, well, why can't we just have the originals, and there wouldn't be any
2: question? You could ask that question on many, many different fronts. Why is it that God has not given us the interpretation of the Bible as well? You could ask, why is it that he hasn't just declared from heaven what the gospel is and have people stand up and and, uh, say, okay, Lord, I got it now, rather than using imperfect human beings to communicate the message. The fact is that God has always worked in human history through imperfect vessels, and not one of us has ever gotten all of us theological ducks in a row, nor our personal lives uh, right with the Lord exactly. But he still uses human beings to bring about his grace, and that's one of the great things about this. When it comes to the manuscript copies, One of the fascinating things, I think, that that, uh, scholars who work in this field have noticed is they become kind of like a Sherlock Holmes. And I think the very fact that these manuscripts are not perfectly preserved is one of the reasons why scholars spend so much time studying the Bible. Just imagine, if you would, if all of our manuscripts were perfectly preserved or identical to the original or we had the originals then I I suspect what people would end up doing is almost worshipping those original documents rather than studying the manuscripts to see what the original said. Good point. And it would end up being a a worship of that object rather than examining what the words are in that object that that, uh, point to Christ.
1: Now, Dr. Wallace, you come across these variant readings from these scribes. What is the process in which you discern? where the error is and how you know which one was most likely accurate to the original. How has that process come about?
2: Well, it's a method that most scholars follow which is called reasoned eclecticism and it involves two different elements. One is let's look at the ex- external data which are the manuscripts, the versions, the patristic writings and then let's li- examine the internal data which have to do with uh, the mind of the author and the mind of the scribe. So we're looking both at hard data, which is external, and soft data, which is internal. That doesn't mean that the internal data are going to be more subjective because we know that all the manuscripts are corrupt, so both halves of these have have things that are uh, a little bit off in terms of objectivity. But when you look at the external data, you compare the various groups of manuscripts because most manuscripts are found in, in families, and then you compare them in terms of where a particular reading was found. So if you have the wording in uh, one place that is found all over the Mediterranean region in Greek manuscripts, in versions, in quotations by church fathers, then most likely that kind of wording could not have come about by collusion since it's spread out geographically. And so what scholars would say is, well, if it's spread out geographically like that, it probably goes back to an earlier source, much earlier than any of these sources. And that's how we examine the external data. When it comes to internal data, we're looking at what a scribe is likely to do, and we see the kinds of mistakes they make, and we can document this very carefully, very easily, what scribes are prone to do. They, they drop out words by accident. They add words on purpose. Uh, there's a number of things to do. And then we look at what an author is likely to do. Would an author be likely to say this, or would he be likely to say that? So by combining both halves of, of the evidence, uh, scholars are able to come to a fair degree of certainty about the vast majority of the text of the New Testament, but not certainty about all of it.
1: Yes, and with so many thousands of documents from which we can compare, we can be, we can get pretty close to the
0: original, can't we?
2: Yes, and, and I'd say that our uh, certainty about what the original text said is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 99 percent. That's pretty decent. Yeah,
1: 99 percent. and What about that 1%? Should we be concerned about that 1% that we're not
0: sure of?
2: No, because as I said earlier, uh, that 1% does not affect any cardinal truth that Christians embrace. But it does affect the meaning of the text. And I think we should be concerned to this degree that we say we want to try to understand what the original text said. We want to try to know what these uh, apostles and their associates wrote. And so consequently, let's get back to the wording of the original as much as we can. Uh, So let me give an illustration. In in, in Revelation 13, 18, the vast majority of manuscripts there have the number of the beast. Everybody knows this, the number of the beast, the number of the Antichrist. Well, that's 666. There's seven tons of popular Christian literature that are claiming that. So everyone knows that's the number of the Antichrist. The problem is that there was a manuscript uh, in Paris that was examined 150 years ago that has the number 616. And there was a manuscript just discovered five years ago at Oxford University, a fragment. It's the earliest papyrus fragment for Revelation 13. And it also has the number of the beast as 616. I would say that's an important textual variant. It's meaningful. It tells us that this could possibly be the original wording. And if it is, it's going to send these seven tons of popular Christian literature to the flames. Oh. But at the same time, it doesn't affect any doctrine that Christians embrace. I have yet to find in any church doctrinal statement Oh, and we believe that the number of the Antichrist is 666. It's not part of our our doctrinal convictions at all.
0: You know, I'd be kind of, in a way, satisfied if we find out that it was 616 because I'm so tired of seeing 666 everywhere, and that's going to be a lot of guys are going to be trying to get their tattoos off of them. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It really is. So what you're saying is we can be very confident
1: in the text that we have here that it's 99% accurate to the original text.
2: I believe that's correct, yes.
1: And we haven't found any text out there that contradicts any major doctrinal statement here that the church has believed for thousands of years, and that's, that's correct.
2: That's right. Yes, we haven't. They have no essential doctrine has been impacted by these viable variants, the variants that have any possibility of going back to the original.
1: And that's. Now, very important when we're talking with skeptics and liberals and atheists who attack the credibility of the New Testament. You've had a lot of interaction with people from the Jesus Seminar and the Society of Biblical Literature, and many of them attack the credibility of the New Testament. You're going to want to do more research in this area. Dr. Wallace, tell us about your website here.
2: The website, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts website is uh, csntm.org. org.
0: CSNTM. Dot .org Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. We want to thank Dr. Dan Wallace for being our guest this week and next week he will return
1: and we'll be talking about the important topic of the reinventing of Jesus.
0: Evidence and Answers is a radio program that will equip you to know and defend your faith in Christ. To always give an answer to those who ask you about the hope that you have. Evidence and Answers will also help skeptics and people of other faiths to hear clearly the truth about Jesus. You know, Pat speaks all over the world, presenting and defending the claims of Jesus Christ to a non-believing world. From college campuses to youth events to church auditoriums, and he raises his own financial support to do so. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Just a quick note to let us know you're listening means so much to us, and thanks so much.